this week, uh, I came across an interview with Matthew Perry. Any Matthew Perry fans? Uh, friends? Chandler? You know, married Monica, that, that guy? Uh, he did an interview recently with Diane Sawyer. And in the interview, uh, he's really talking about the memoir that he just composed, and it's called Friends, Lovers, and the Big Terrible Thing. The big terrible thing for him is his addiction. And he talked about it really openly in the interview he had with Diane Sawyer. He talked about how it started at the age of 14. And when he drank for the first time, he thought, man, this is the way normal people feel. And he just kept drinking. And his drinking progressed and became an addiction. And it escalated. And eventually, as an adult, it led him to opiates. And he said... Uh, to get opiates that he would go uh, to open houses because, I mean, he could go to anyone. Uh, he could call his real estate agent. The real estate agent would take him to anybody's house. Anybody's house would give him a private tour, and they would trust him because he is Matthew Perry. And uh, so he would go through all the bathrooms, and he would find uh, the pills that they would have in their medicine cabinets. And no one asked any questions about it. But the saddest moment of the interview, at least for me, was him watching him watch a clip of himself when he was really, really thin. And he got really choked up. And he said those years of friends when he was really skinny, he was on opiates. And the years where he had weight on him were the years that he was into alcohol. Here's some data points from his struggle with addiction. He thinks he's been to somewhere around 6,000 AA meetings. I've not been to church 6,000 times. And I'm a pastor. 6,000 AA meetings, 30 years of therapy, 15 rehab trips, 14 surgeries, and 65 detoxes. And in the interview, she asked him, what made you stop? And he used some language that lots of alcoholics use. And he says, I had to hit rock bottom. And that rock bottom happened for me and a detox. I had taken eight Xanax, he said, and he said it was a dose that was likely going to kill him, and he had to get some anti-seizure medication, and he was waiting for his medication in his room, and he said that's when it happened. He said that's when the heavens opened, and he was terrified at first. It was this light that came down on him, but then he started to feel better. And that light engendered what he says is a feeling of perfect euphoria, like no drugs he had ever taken. It was a feeling that he couldn't shake off. Here's what he says in his memoir. He says, but there was no shaking this off. It was way, way bigger than me. My only choice was to surrender to it, which was not hard because it felt so good. The euphoria had begun at the top of my head and slowly seeped down throughout my entire body. I must have sat there for five, six, seven minutes filled with it. And for the first time in my life, I was in the presence of love and acceptance and filled with an overwhelming feeling that everything was going to be okay. I knew that my prayers had been answered. I was in the presence of God. It's an inspiring story. But I think it's more than inspiring for me and for you this morning. I think it's instructive. See, you don't have to be an addict in order to relate to the experience of an addict. See, the way the Bible talks about sin is that it's a power that's compulsive in nature. 
And no matter how hard you try to eliminate its influence, you'll find it still at work in your life. And that sounds like addiction, doesn't it? And if you slow down long enough and you begin to think, you'll begin to resonate with Paul's words in Romans chapter 7, where he says, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Sounds like an addict, doesn't it? So how does God deal with us? Us who are addicts in sin. Our text tells us, Genesis 3, starting with verse 8. We're going to read verses 8 through 24. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till, you're, till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken for your dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The word of the Lord. Like I mentioned earlier, we've been in Genesis the last several weeks. And what we've seen is that God had uh, created a beautiful world. It was stunning. There was variety. And this world found its pinnacle with mankind. Mankind, Adam and Eve, who were made in God's image. And this mankind, their existence was marked by relationships. Perfect ones. Perfect ones with God, with each other, with the, with the creation itself. And they were going to enjoy the abundance of the Garden of Eden. They are going to enjoy it as long as they refrain from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what we looked at last time I was with you was that they were tempted to eat from the tree, and they did. And this was sin. 
And when you get done reading verse 7 of chapter 3, you're left wondering, how is God going to respond to their disobedience? Well, that's what our passage is really all about today. And what we see is a similar pattern for how God treats Adam and Eve's disobedience with how he treats ours, how he treats our rebellion, our fallenness, our folly, our weakness, our sin. And here's the pattern. First, he confronts us. Then he gives us consequences. And he does it all with compassion. See what I did there? Three C's? I mean, I never work out the three C's. But here they are. They're confrontation, consequences, and compassion. The first thing we see in our text is that God comes and finds Adam and Eve. Because Adam and Eve, they're scared of coming to God to repent. If you've ever been around children, you know you've won when they come to you and tell you the bad that they did. You don't have to catch them. And that's how you know they're really sorry. But here's what's beautiful here about what God does to Adam and Eve in verse 8. He comes and finds them. So even though Adam and Eve weren't going to take ownership unless God found them, God did come and find them. And see, what we're afraid of is that we want to isolate ourselves. We don't want people to find out our secrets. So when God finds a means of confronting us, he confronts us through other people, through our circumstances, he might even do it through a sermon. We can know that it's his mercy that motivates his confrontation He knows you will only be well when you confess your sin and you come out of hiding. So being confronted about our sin, none of us are are looking for that today. None of us signed up for that. We're not saying, hey, that sounds like a lot of fun. But if God really loves us, then he knows what's best for us. And what's best for us is that we come out of hiding. And that's going to require that he confronts you. And for most of us, confrontation by a person in power, it's really hard. It's really hard because we know of lots of scenarios where people in power didn't confront things that they should have, that they turned a blind eye to it. For many of us, confrontation by those who are in power, it seems vindictive at times. It seems capricious. It seems arbitrary. But that's not what God's doing in this confrontation with Adam and Eve. And that's not what God ever does, because what God always does is that he confronts righteously. And he does so with mercy. And there's multiple places we see this mercy in his confrontation with Adam and Eve. Well, we already saw in the fact that he's the one who goes looking for Adam and Eve. He doesn't let them continue to stay in their shame because they don't know how to handle their shame. But we also see it in how he asks questions. Did you see his questions in verse 9 and 11? Verse 9, he asks the question, where are you? Verse 11, he said, who told you that you were naked? Well, is that what you would expect from God? I mean, wouldn't you expect God to be really harsh with them? I mean, he's the one who said, hey, you're going to surely die if you eat from this tree. Well, that's what I expect God to do. I would expect God to come in guns blazing. I would expect him to have charges and accusations, but not questions. But he wants Adam and Eve, what he wants from them is that he wants them to rat themselves out. He wants them to witness against themselves. And then they, they do. Verse 11, Adam admits to eating the fruit. Verse 13, Eve admits the same. And didn't you see their admissions are far from perfect? Both Adam and Eve, they spend way more time blame shifting than they do taking responsibility, don't they? Do you see who Adam blames in verse 12? He blames Eve. 
I mean, this is the same woman that he sang that song about when God brought her to him. Remember that? Now he's trying to put the blame on her. And what's even worse is that he blames God. God, you gave me such a poor excuse of a woman that that's the reason I've sinned. And then God gets to Eve. Eve blames somebody different. Eve blames a serpent. And so the first place that you see the fall is that they're hiding in the trees. The second place you see the fall is in this blame shifting. They're pointing the fingers at everybody else but themselves. Doesn't that sound familiar? Why is that? Why are we so slow to point the finger at ourselves? Well, it's because we're all quite cozy with ourselves. We'll pin the blame on everybody else who's hurt us. We'll pin the blame on our personality. We'll pin the blame on the government. But we won't take responsibility. But don't get me wrong. I mean, Adam and Eve are victims in some ways, aren't they? I mean, they were lied to. The serpent did deceive them. But that doesn't leave them without responsibility. See, God's going to take care of the serpent, but they've got to see how they participated in this evil. Same's true for us. See, others have sinned against you and it's caused you pain and you've coped with that pain by reacting in sin. For instance, think about it. Someone comes into your house, steals your money, so then you have to go buy, and instead you can't buy food, so you have to eat, so you go to the store and you steal food and then you're the one who gets in trouble. Well, can you imagine what would happen if you told the judge, listen, judge, the only reason I stole food is because somebody stole money from me. How would that work out for you? Were you sinned against? Yes. But you're still responsible for stealing from the store. And here's my little observation of life. That for us, the vast majority of our sin is really just a way of us dealing with our pain of being sinned against. But even if you're responding in sin to the way you've been sinned against... God's going to mercifully confront you. And it's not going to end there. He's going to deal out some consequences for your disobedience. He gives Adam and Eve consequences that are different. Eve's going to feel it in the relationship she has with her children and with her husband. You see it in verse 16? Verse 16 says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. What this really means is that motherhood will be one of the primary places that a woman will experience the fall. In the NIV, it says, it goes on to say, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. At first glance, when you see that your desire will be for your husband, you're thinking something sexual in nature here, but that's not what's going on. Now, the Bible's not afraid to talk in sexual terms, but that's not what's going on here in verse 16. See, this word desire is used in two other places. One of those places is just the next chapter, just a few verses later, verse 7 of chapter 4, talking about Cain and Abel. And God says to Cain, he says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to have you. Now, clearly, it's not talking sexual in nature. What's going on here is that Cain's being tempted and God is telling him that sin desires to have him, to dominate him, to control him. So God is telling Eve that instead of experiencing unity in her marriage with her husband, 
What's going to happen now is that she's going to want to overpower him. She's going to want to control him. She's going to want to dominate him. But then it goes the opposite way too, doesn't it? Do you see that in verse 16? It says, he will rule over you. In other words, because of the fall, marriage now becomes this tug of war. This tug of war of power. Instead of the relationship that's characterized by being one flesh, but being characterized by a blissful mutuality. So you read this consequence for Eve here in verse 16. Doesn't that make you sad? Well, Adam should make you sad too. His consequences are different. His are in regards to his work. God tells him that the ground is now cursed. It's going to be difficult for him because he's going to have to weed out thorns and thistles from his crop. It's going to be exhausting. He's going to have to sweat a lot to bring forth food. And if you've been with us the last several weeks, you know how sad this really is. I mean, work was intended to be such a joy for Adam. He was given this glorious privilege by God to have dominion over creation. And Eve was going to help him in that. But no more. Adam and Eve's sin now will be marked by misery, not joy. Aren't these your pain points too in your life? I mean, I, mean, I don't advise you to do this. But if you went home today and you're like, here are all the things that are hard about my life. I bet you all of them would fall in one of two categories. Your job or your family. And that all springs from this text right here. But at the end of the day, the pain of your work and the pain in regards to your family, they're not the most dire consequences for Adam and Eve, and they're not for you either. The most dire consequence is death. See, our consequences here with death, it's not talking about the absence of physical life. What's going on here is that death is being alienated from God, is being kicked out of the Garden of Eden. They, they used to be able to walk with God in the cool of the day. They had this deep communion with God. They had this living, breathing, loving relationship with their father who had made them. But no longer. And this was the saddest thing of all. So you go through here and you see how God confronts us in our sin. You see how he deals out consequences. But take heart. Even though our sin brings consequences, it doesn't mean that God abandons us. Look at our text. Look at all the ways that God extends compassion to Adam and Eve throughout these verses. First, you've got to see it in their confession. I mean, I've already kind of talked about it a little bit. But even though Adam and Eve hid instead of becoming clean, even though they pointed the finger at everyone else and they made excuses, they did confess their sin. They both said, I ate it. And guess what? God didn't cross his arms and say, that's not good enough. I'm looking for a fuller confession out of you. I'm looking for you to be more sorrowful about what you've done. I'm waiting for you not to point the finger anymore. He doesn't. He takes their scrappy confession. The second place you see his compassion is that how he provides skins for them. See, God clothed Adam and Eve with animal skins. He was showing compassion for them, even though they were the ones responsible for their shameful estate. They were trying to deal with their shame with fig leaves, and that wasn't working. God alone is the one who's got to deal with their shame 
He's compassionate towards them. But then you see it in verse 20. Did you catch that? In verse 20, Adam tells Eve something really interesting. He says, verse, verse 20 says, The man ca- called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Well, he didn't have any children in verse 20. I, I don't know if you caught the tone from verse 15 through verse 19. But all those consequences were going on there. And Adam's first response was one of faith. Shocking. I mean, if I were Adam, I would have been saying, "Uh, come on, God. You just let us have it for the last four or five verses here. Uh, Can you cut us some slack? I mean, this is just our first time. I mean, can can we get a redo? Or I think if I were Adam on a different day, I might have said, woe is me. It's all my fault. That's not what he does. He names his wife Eve as the mother of all the living. Somehow, Adam exercised faith. Somehow he thinks that even though they've sinned, God's going to allow them, at least in part, to fulfill what he had called them to do, to be fruitful and multiply. So the question for you and me is, how could Adam have that hope? Where did that hope arise from? I think Adam overheard what God told the serpent. See, verse 15 says, I will put enmity, enmity, God's saying this, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, serpent, and you, serpent, shall bruise his heel. There's hope here. Did you catch it? See, see, what God's saying is that there's going to be two humanities. One's going to arise from the serpent seed, and the other's going to arise from Eve's seed. All of us can trace our ancestry back to one or the other. And what God is saying here is that there's going to be conflict between these two lines. What he's saying is that one is going to defeat the other. At Eve's seed is going to defeat the Satan's seed. There's going to be suffering involved. Eve's seed is going to crush his head, but in the process of doing so, his heel will be struck. And you know from the rest of the Bible's narrative that Jesus is indeed that victorious seed. He's the one who's going to crush Satan. He's the one who's going to cast Satan into the lake of fire. And what's going to qualify him to do this work is the fact that he suffered. See, in order to win this battle against evil, he had to endure immense suffering. You know it. He had rejection from those closest to him. He was misunderstood by everybody. He had to endure physical pain and the end death. He had endured the judgment of God for your sin and mine. But that's what enabled Jesus to fulfill this promise of being the seed from the woman who crushed Satan and in the process had his heel struck. And when Adam heard this promise, he had to be surprised. He knew that even though God confronted them, and even though God righteously spelled out results for their sin, he still loved them. Even though they had sinned against him, he was going to rescue them. So brother and sister, are you hiding today? 
Or maybe you're hiding behind a pristine social media account. You look beautiful. All your people look beautiful. Maybe you're hiding behind a facade of religious piety. All your Bible studies, all your knowledge, all your books, all your behavior change, all your resolutions that you've checked off perfectly. Maybe you're hiding behind a banner of conservatism. Maybe you're hiding behind a banner of empathy. But you've got to come clean. Show God and show his people where you've gone astray. Because God's in here this morning. He's asking, where are you? See, he knows where you are. But he's going to deal gently with you. He's going to take a half-hearted confession. He'll give you consequences, but he's not going to remove his presence from you. And in the end, God's going to defeat evil instead of you. See, Jesus has defeated evil, and now you can stand behind him and let his victory be yours. You can come out from behind the trees, friends. And he's going to clothe you with righteousness. Isn't it a comfort that God will come find you when you are hiding from him? Let's pray. Oh God, we don't expect that in this text. (laughs) We expect a God who is only stern. We don't expect a God who shows compassion. And so, Lord, I pray that we would see you as you really are. Lord, we, we could never have dreamed you up. You're too complex and beautiful and mysterious. And and that causes us to wonder and be shocked that you would have anything to do with us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would pursue us now. You'd pursue us in this meal. And you would light up our eyes to the love you have for us. In Christ's name, amen.